Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. Well, good morning, Bible Center. Welcome back to church. It's great to have you here. It's a joy to have you, those of you who are with us in person, those of you who are joining us online or on TV. Uh, thank you for being with us today. If you're new, I'm Matt. I'm the lead pastor. It'd be great to meet you after the service. I'll be down front. Uh, we like to say that we're a family expecting guests. And so if you came as a guest, it's our desire that you will leave as a friend. If you would take your Bible or your Bible app and open with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 will be our text this morning. I want to invite you again to Christmas Eve, our Christmas Eve services coming up this week, uh, 3 o'clock, 4.30, and 6 o'clock. All three services uh, will be identical. We'd love for you to attend uh, any one of those services. Bring somebody with you. Uh, you can see the schedule. There's going to be some other online opportunities, some TV opportunities. All of that's on the website and the app. Um, this is my favorite service of the year, and I've just seen little caption, little snippets of it. Uh, but I'm excited to see the whole thing and participate and worship right along with you. Well, today we conclude our three-week Awkward Family Christmas series, and hopefully you've enjoyed all the awkward sweaters. The very first week, I thought everybody was going to wear an awkward sweater, and so I wore one and like no one else did. And then today, it was just so good to see Pastor John with that cat and those bells knowing that I'm wearing a sport coat. It just felt really, really, really good. But today we're doing our, our, today's message is entitled The Awkward Gifts of Christmas, and we're looking at different gifts uh, given primarily to Jesus by the Magi. But before we do that, let's take just a moment and think back of some of the most popular Christmas gifts from the last 100 years. Here's the most popular gift from 1923. It was a chemistry set, and it sold like crazy. The problem is that a few months later, it was recalled because it was, you're able to make bombs with it. Another popular gift was 1928, double bubble chewing gum, the most popular Christmas gift. Try doing that for your children this year. Kids, this year, it's going to be extra special. You are getting nothing but chewing gum. 1939, the popular Christmas gift that year were these little army figures. Some of you Ted Lasso fans will recognize those. In 1946, the most popular gift was Tupperware. Tupperware, you could put like, you know, leftovers in it, meatloaf, and it would keep for 50 years. It was phenomenal. Some of us still have it in our homes with the meatloaf. Uh, 1966, the most popular gift was a troll doll. Now, I won't ask how many of you had a troll doll, but I found out this week that they were actually parties where teenagers would gather, and it was bring-your-own-troll-doll parties. I love you. That's just creepy, right? That is just creepy. But in 1975, the most popular gift was a pet rock. And I will ask today, how many of you had a pet rock sometime in the 70s. Okay, a few of you had a pet rock. Some of you like barely have your hand up. Yeah, pet rock, the most popular Christmas gift in 1975. Well, today we're looking at the three popular Christmas gifts, or at least well-known Christmas gifts given to Jesus by the Magi, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
And really this message is very simple to follow. I'm just going to retell the story of the Magi, of the wise men, and I'm going to give you four challenges, four encouragements. And so I understand there's no way that any of us can walk away from a message and remember all four encouragements, all four challenges, but I would ask you to try to pick one. Try to ask the Lord to show you one that you can take away today and apply to your life. If you want to follow along on the app, all the notes are there on the app. They're also on the website. Uh, There's a lot that we won't have time to cover, but you can go deeper and study this week. Let's look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, it's likely It just says after Jesus was born. It's likely that this took place one to two years after Jesus was born. I'll tell you why in a moment. We know the city of Bethlehem is important. It's important for Matthew. It's important in this story. It's where Jesus was born. It's also where King David was born. Bethlehem was a relatively small town in Jesus' time. It's still a relatively small town even today. It's about half the size of Charleston. And if you want to get an idea of how far Bethlehem was from Charleston, really it was about the distance of our church campus to downtown Charleston. That's about how far Bethlehem is, about six miles or so. We're introduced in verse 1 to the antagonist, the villain of the story. His name was King Herod. Herod was like Satan personified. So who was King Herod? Well, history knows him as Herod the Great or Herod the First. He was actually a governor. He wasn't a king, but he loved the title king, and so Rome allowed him to keep that title just as long as he kept the taxes flowing to Rome. Uh, The year of Jesus' birth was likely the year of Herod's death. He reigned for about 30 years prior to Jesus, maybe a little longer, and he either died the year Jesus was born or maybe the year later. Herod's legacy isn't all bad. He did a lot of really good things for Israel. For instance, he rebuilt, he repaired the temple in Jerusalem. He rebuilt walls, larger walls, around the temple complex. The western wall, the wailing wall. Those of you that have been to Israel, if you've put little prayer requests in the wailing wall, that was built by Herod the Great. He built theaters and cities and palaces and fortresses. Uh, If you've ever been to the Israel city Caesarea by the sea, Herod built that as well, including that giant hippodrome. Herod was a shrewd political survivor. He would basically be on whom, who, whichever side got him the most popularity. For instance, when civil war broke out in Rome between the, the famous Mark Antony with Cleopatra VII, the queen of Egypt, and his enemy Octavian, initially Herod sided with Mark Antony and Cleopatra. But when Octavian beat them, Herod was somehow able to convince Octavian that the whole thing was a ruse and that all along he was really on on his side. You might not have heard of Octavian, but Octavian is known to us in history as Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus and Herod had a unique uh, relationship. Uh, He knew how ruthless Herod could be. Herod was notoriously had two of his wives murdered because they were a threat somehow to his dynasty He had three of his sons murdered because they were a threat to his dynasty. 
And Caesar Augustus said that it was safer to be Herod's hog than it was to be Herod's son. Herod would later murder all all of the boys under the age of two in Bethlehem out of fear of Jesus. This was one bad dude. Now, what about the Magi? Verse 1 introduces us to the Magi, the main characters in this story, other than Jesus. Who were these wise men? Well, we don't know what country they were from, but we do know that at the time of Jesus, that religious leaders, well-educated leaders in Persia were known as Magi. We'll see it in a moment, even in the Old Testament. They were religious leaders who were experts in the great beyond. Their practices included astrology, dream interpretation, the study of sacred writings, and magic. Now, it's helpful to remember that in the ancient world, there was little distinction made between superstition and science. So magi, some of them simply served as chemists. Some of them served as doctors, some as mathematicians, philosophers, or legal authorities. The word magic or magician and the word magistrate both come from the Persian word magi. Now, again, magi are mentioned all throughout the Old Testament. There's some references in your notes for you to see. Uh, But in the book of Daniel, they're mentioned 22 times. Depending on your Bible translation, they're either translated as magi or as wise men. Daniel was a magi. According to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 48, he was the chief of the magis. Now, Daniel had earned that reputation because he was able to interpret the king's dreams. God had this unique relationship with Daniel and gave him all sorts of knowledge that we, frankly, we can't understand. God gave him some kind of knowledge about a king and a kingdom that was to come who will be from ancient, be from old, and the kingdom will know no end. We see that in Daniel 2 in verse 44. It's possible that God gave Daniel some unique interpretations about the the prophecy in Numbers 24, 17. A star will come out of Jacob and a scepter will rise out of Israel. Now there are three myths about, or two myths about the Magi that we need to dispel. One of those myths is the number. We often refer to the three wise men. You know that nowhere in the Bible does it ever say there were three Now, it's okay. I'm not trying to take away from your nativity set at home. We have a nativity set at our house. Sometimes I'll joke with my wife and I'll like remove one of the magi or move them somewhere else. Uh, But listen, nativities are beautiful, but most nativities have how many wise men? They have three. But the Bible never says there were three. There were three gifts. There was gold, frankincense, and myrrh. One early Christian tradition from the Middle East says there could have been 12 magi. We can ask Jesus when we get to heaven. Another myth that really kind of arose out of the West is that the Magi rode camels. And our nativity said at home, they're all on camels. Well, actually, uh, we think that in the West that everybody in the Middle East rides camels, right? Well, well, actually, most likely, uh, they were on Arabian or Nasian horses. The oldest paintings and carvings of the Magi look like this. Now, again, there you go. There's three but at least they're on horses. Here's a painting that I think probably reflects what they looked like as they approached Jerusalem. Notice verse two. 
The Magi asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. Now we have to ask the question, what is the star? What's going on here? Really, there's two explanations. One's a physical explanation and one is a spiritual explanation. I tend to side on the spiritual side of things, not the physical, but here's typically how the physical explanation goes. This may be uh, the opinion or theory that you hold. Some say that this was an actual constellation of stars, a comet, a supernova, or even the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. Now, that's a possibility. The problem is uh, we know from history that Jupiter and Saturn aligned about six years before Jesus was born, so it's probably not that. I tend to believe it's just something spiritual, that there's a spiritual explanation to the star. Maybe it was an angel who glowed. You say, Matt, why do you believe that? Well, I think we have to be careful as Christians, always feeling like we must come up with a scientific explanation for everything that the Bible says. Think about it. There's a lot in the Bible that's not science. You can't explain it with science. No matter what your theory is on the creation of the universe, there is no scientific way to describe it. No matter what your theory is, God did it, right? We can't reproduce it. That's science. God did it. Think about the virgin birth. How are you going to explain that with science? The incarnation? The resurrection of Jesus? So let's not think that we have to somehow scientifically prove everything in the Bible. This is a spiritual book that has direct impact on our physical world, but not everything can be explained. I tend to kind of see it like in the Old Testament when the Shekinah glory of God came down on the tabernacle in the temple in Exodus 13. I tend to see it like the pillar of fire at night that guided Israel through the wilderness, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Probably the closest explanation is in Luke chapter 2. Remember in Luke chapter 2, the shepherds, all of a sudden they see this light from heaven. And what is the light? But it's a heavenly host of angels singing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So being it around Christmas, it's very likely again that it was simply an angelic light guiding the Magi. Again, we can ask Jesus when we get to heaven. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 3 says this, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. The interesting thing about King Herod was that he loved to be called the king of the Jews. And so when these magi ride into town looking for someone called the king of the Jews, it really piqued his interest. He was quite threatened. Well, not only did it disturb Herod, but this verse says it disturbed all Jerusalem with him. Not part of Jerusalem, the entire city which is another reason for us to realize this wasn't three dudes riding in on camels. This was an entourage of people. Probably they had their servants and officials. If you're a Disney fan, you're going to love this. If you're not a Disney fan, forgive me. But if you're a Disney fan, you're going to love this. Uh, the movie Aladdin, right? The live-action movie Aladdin where Prince Ali rides into town, right? There's this huge parade and pomp and circumstance. That's what I see in my mind when I read Matthew 2 and verse 3. My mind is a dangerous place to be. All right, verse, verse 4. 
when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Before Herod meets with the Magi, he calls a private meeting in his office. He gets them together and he's like, look guys, these fellows out here with the parade, they're asking about the king of the Jews. What are they talking about? And notice what the religious leaders in Jerusalem tell them. Matthew 2, 5. In Bethlehem, Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you, talking about Bethlehem, will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. In short, the religious leaders quote two verses. They quote Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2. This is super important. In every sermon, we wanna, I want to inspire you. I want to challenge you. But I also want to teach you something that God teaches me throughout the week. And this is something for us to know. These verses, Matthew 2, 5, and 6, are the very center of the whole story. Now, we kind of like read over them. But this is the main point Matthew's trying to get across. Because remember, the theme of the book of Matthew is that Jesus is God with us. He's the fulfillment of the line of David. He's the fulfillment of the messianic promise. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, Matthew says, because he is the promised one. Notice what happens in verses 7 and 8. Herod finally calls the Magi into his office. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may worship him. Question for you. Do you think Herod had any intention in worshiping the child? No, he didn't. And they knew that. They knew his reputation, right? He's not going to worship the child. He wants to kill the child. Verse 9, after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped. There's another reason I think the star was supernatural. It stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. This is super important. Here's a, an observation from these two verses. Matthew never tells us where the Magi went, where the child was or where the star was. More specifically, he never tells us that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were still in Bethlehem. He never says the Magi went to Bethlehem. He never says that the Magi followed Herod's orders to go to Bethlehem. Herod assumes the baby is still in Bethlehem, but Matthew never says that. Many scholars, dare I say most scholars, believe that by this time, Jesus was back living in his home in Nazareth. Why would they say that? Why would they believe that? Well, the next verse we'll see in a moment, verse 11 says Jesus was in his house. Jesus was in a house. He was no longer in a stable. He was no longer by the manger. We're going to see in a moment uh, that Jesus is back in his house. Now think with me for a moment. What you know of the Christmas story, what I know of the Christmas story. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? 
humanly speaking. He was born in Bethlehem because Luke 2 says Joseph had to take Mary to Bethlehem to be counted in the census and pay his taxes. Joseph was of the family of David, and if you were of the family of David, you had to register every so many years in Bethlehem. They had no intention of giving birth in Bethlehem, but God in his province sent Mary into labor. Remember when they knocked on the door of the inn and there was no room for them in the inn? Bethlehem wasn't their house. Bethlehem wasn't their home. They were on a temporary trip. Let's get these taxes paid and get back home to Nazareth. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40, that Mary and Joseph went to the temple 40 days later after Jesus was born to dedicate the child. After they dedicated the Christ child, Luke 2.39 says that Joseph and Mary and Jesus returned again to Nazareth. They didn't come from Bethlehem. They didn't go back to Bethlehem. They came from Nazareth. Bethlehem was a quick one-stop trip that ultimately sent Mary into labor. Now, one might think, well, first of all, what's the big deal? You might also think, well, maybe the, 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 the wise men visited during that 40 days. During the 40 days after Jesus was born, maybe they stayed in Bethlehem for 40 days. The Bible doesn't tell us. Here are a couple reasons why there's a problem with that. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, tell us that Joseph and Mary left for Egypt the same night the Magi left. You see, when the Magi left, Herod sent his soldiers into Bethlehem, thinking that the Christ child was still there, to kill all the males two years old and younger. Well, it tells us in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, they left for Egypt right on the same night that the Magi left. So it's impossible for them to have gone to Nazareth and then back to Egypt. We also know there's a problem with that theory because in Luke chapter 2, when they're dedicating Jesus in the temple, they're so poor they can only afford uh, two turtle doves or two pigeons. According to Luke chapter 2, in the Old Testament, if you dedicated your child, you had to bring a sacrifice and thanksgiving to God for his gift. If you were at least middle class and above, you could afford a lamb. But if you were not, you could buy two pigeons for cheap. And according to Luke chapter 2, they didn't have enough money to buy a lamb. They only had enough money to buy pigeons. Does that sound like a young couple who's just received a big gift of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to you? No. No. Now, I know young couples, speaking from experience, I know young couples can blow through money right? I know that. I just have a hard time thinking that they blew through gold, frankincense, and myrrh in 40 days. But God in his providence, God in his providence provided them with what they needed. Why didn't Matthew simply say that Jesus was living in Nazareth at this time? Because it wasn't a relevant point. Matthew was just trying to connect Jesus to Bethlehem, where Jesus was born and where David was born. There are no errors in the Bible, but sometimes there's facts left out that maybe aren't relevant to the main point. Verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, 
and myrrh. The fact that the Magi bowed down fits in with Matthew's theme of the whole book. He's trying to prove that Jesus is God. He's worthy to be worshiped. He is Emmanuel, God with us, as we saw over the last couple weeks. And so Matthew is so excited to include this true story in his gospel account because he wants us to see that Jesus is no mere baby. He is God in the flesh. Now, if you're taking notes, what does the gold, frankincense, and myrrh symbolize? The gold symbolizes his royalty. The frankincense symbolizes his divinity, the fact that he's God. And the myrrh symbolizes his death. Gold was a gift fit for kings. At this time, it was the most precious substance known to man. And so they presented a king, a future king, with what you would give to a king. You give him gold. Now, frankincense is a little bit odd to us. It's not a word that we use a lot, if ever. But in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 30, Leviticus chapter 2, frankincense was put on the sacrifices to make them smell good. So if you're sacrificing lambs to the Lord in the temple, in the tabernacle, one, you want them to smell good, but they also wanted them to be pleasing to the Lord, a sweet-smelling savor, the Bible says. This is how you got the sweet-smelling savor, with frankincense. Myrrh was embalming fluid. Who brings embalming fluid to a baby shower? Right? It seems a little morbid. Like, why would they do that? Did they know what they were doing? Predicting, prophesying his death? I think so, but we don't know for sure. But they bring this myrrh to, to Jesus, symbolizing his death. In John chapter 19, it's what they use to prepare Jesus for burial. In Mark chapter 15, they also used it as an anesthetic. They would, they would take it and try to put it to Jesus' lips to numb the pain of dying on the cross. Jesus rejected it, Mark chapter 15 and verse 23. As odd as the gifts seem to us, this blow, blew my mind this week. Think of this. As odd as it seems, right after this, Herod comes hunting for this baby to kill him. Now, even though Joseph and Mary are in Nazareth, they know that eventually he's going to find their child. And so they leave and they flee to Egypt, Matthew 2 says. It doesn't tell us how long. It says to at least until Herod died. Some believe that it was until his son even died. Maybe or at least until his son was no longer effective. That's a long story. But it was at least several years. If you're poor like Joseph and Mary, and you can't even afford a lamb in the temple, how are you going to afford to live in Egypt for several years without your carpentry tools, without a way to make a living? How are you going to afford that? The answer is simple, with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This was worth at least several years' wages, if not a lot more for poor Joseph. They could rent an apartment. They could buy food. God in his providence took care of this young couple, even with the gifts of the Magi. And it says in verse 12, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. There are several encouragements that I want to give before we're done. Here's the first one. Seek Jesus while he may be found. Seek Jesus while he may be found. That's what the Magi did. 
They were willing to do whatever it took to seek Jesus, but not Herod. The Magi would travel over a thousand miles at least. Herod wouldn't even leave his home. Don't be a Herod. Be a Magi. Wise men and women still seek him. They still seek Jesus. As I talk with adults, as I talk with friends, there are two things. If you're talking with someone who's really doubting this Christian faith, there's two things that often we have trouble explaining. Anyone has trouble explaining apart from the Bible. And that is death and the other is shame. Death and shame. So I want to ask you today, if you're here today, do you you ever think about your death? Do you ever contemplate what's going to happen after you die? You might be in control of a lot here, but what's going to happen the day you take your last breath? What about your shame? What remedy is that for your shame? Overwork doesn't fix it. Distractions and toys don't fix it. So what are you going to do with your shame? That's where the gospel comes in. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day. So seek Jesus while he may be found. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. I am convinced God brought you here today for a purpose, for a reason. And my prayer is that in a moment when we're having communion, that when Christians are praying about other things, that you will say a prayer of your own, in your own words, asking Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life. Seek Jesus while you may be found. Number two, share the gospel with someone who's not yet a believer. Share the gospel with someone who's not yet a believer. This story drips with the gospel. The three gifts the whole circumstance of the wise men, the emphasis of the Old Testament prophets, the the emphasis on hope and love, the whole thing emphasizes the gospel. We say here at Bible Center, the gospel can be summarized in 10 words. God creates, sin breaks, Jesus saves, Jesus transforms, and God restores. Don't hide the gospel this Christmas. Share the gospel this Christmas. Who is in your mind? Who's on your heart who needs to hear the gospel? Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a family member. Somebody you need to go to coffee with. A letter you need to write. Maybe it's someone you could invite to our Christmas Eve services where they are going to hear the gospel plainly and simply. Share the gospel with someone who's not yet a believer. Here's my third encouragement from this story. See Christmas as a global thing, not just an American thing. See Christmas as a global thing, not just as an American thing. I love the United States of America. I'm a 10th generation West Virginian. We friends were in West Virginia before there was a West Virginia, back when it was Virginia. I'm so thankful for the freedoms I have in this country to do what I do and to get to partner with you to do what you do. I'm so thankful for that. But can we remember and agree that the Bible never tells us that Christianity is just an American thing? It's a global thing. 
That's one of the emphases that Matthew's trying to get across. We see it all the way at the end of his book in Matthew 28. The last three verses tell us, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go and make disciples of all nations, right? That's his bookend, Matthew 28. Let's go to the beginning of the book. Matthew chapter two, what do we see? All the nations of the world, at least several nations of the world, coming and bowing before Jesus through the person and persons of the Magi. That's one of the big emphases in Matthew's gospel. Christianity is not just an American thing. It is a global thing. I don't know what news you watch, what news you read, where you even get your news. But no matter where you get it, I can guarantee you one thing. Your news wants to keep you afraid. Your news wants to keep you afraid. When we look at the world, it's very easy to be afraid, right? And there's a lot of bad stuff taking place. But think about what Jesus said in Matthew 16. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right now in sub-Saharan Africa, Christians are meeting and worshiping Jesus. There are more Christians, it's said, in China today than are in the United States of America. In South America, Christianity is flourishing. In, in Korea, Christianity is flourishing in the South. And by God's grace, we pray that one day it could flourish again in the North. Why is this taking place? It's because of what Matthew's prophesying here. Christianity is not a, an American thing. It's a global thing. There's a verse, Matthew, Revelation 21, 24. Many scholars believe that John in the book of Revelation is hinting at overtones of the Magi. It says of the new heavens and the new earth, the day after God makes all things new, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Perhaps John had the Magi in mind. See Christmas as a global thing, not just as an American thing. And finally, number four, and in closing, serve someone in need. Serve someone in need. This is another way that the Magi and Herod were different. The Magi brought Jesus gifts. Herod brought him nothing. The Magi loved Jesus, but Herod only loved himself. You see, for the Magi, their worship was translated into service. And true worship always translates into service. Maybe for you this Christmas, it's serving God in a way that's out of the ordinary. Maybe it's serving God in a way that's different than you normally do. We just had a team, this team, return from Mayfield, Kentucky. I'm so thankful for this team. It was last minute. We'll be saying more about how we as a church can serve our neighbors in Kentucky and otherwise. Maybe for you, it's serving in some way out of the ordinary. Or maybe, and sometimes it's, it's as hard and sometimes harder to serve the Lord in a way that is ordinary. Maybe there's somebody in your family. Maybe there's a friend. Maybe there's somebody in need and no one will ever know about it. But if the Lord puts them on your heart this Christmas, could I invite you to serve someone in need this Christmas? 
Let's be like the Magi. Why do we give gifts at Christmas? You ever wonder that? It goes back to this tradition of the wise men. They brought gifts to Jesus, and for almost 2,000 years since, Christians have been giving gifts to one another to be thankful for what Christ has given us so we serve others in need. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Share the gospel with someone who's not yet a believer. See Christmas as a global thing, not just an American thing. And serve someone in need this Christmas. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media. 